If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. It's just a uh, follow-up to the Thursday morning announcement, because some of you guys that are part of that group, I know you're going to quote this to me. That a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Because this last Thursday, I told you that we would be meeting. That we would be meeting. But I don't do the bulletin. Ellie does. And I did not tell her um, that we would not be meeting. And she had it in the calendar the other way. However, however, um, in the providence of God, uh, this Thursday morning, uh, when you guys start to get here between 5.30 and 6.00, uh, it's expected that the wind chill would be roughly between 40 and 50 below zero. A real temperature, 18 below zero in a strong wind. So this is, a, this is like a providential stamp on my oversight. And, uh, and we will not be meeting this Thursday. I'll send, have Ellie send out a, uh, a note to that effect. Now, I know, again, some of you would definitely be here, 25%. of you would come. But it is where the second half of Calvin's chapter on faith in the Institutes, one of the most important chapters in that entire treatise. Uh, And so we're we're not going to do that with 25% this Thursday. So we'll we'll be a couple weeks out. But there there it is. Um, And I know that won't save me from the accusation later, but I said it out loud anyways. Let's stand together. Mark 4, verses 26 to 29. Mark 4, 26 to 29. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory. As we have just been singing, glory, glory. To your name be glory. Glory based upon your steadfast love by which you sent your Son into the world, the second person of the triune Godhead, as promised in the law of Moses, prophecy of Isaiah, Micah, And elsewhere, Lord, you are glorious as to your steadfast love, and you are glorious as to your truth. But to most of the people in the world, you not only are less than glorious, you are largely ignored. And often your people are mocked, persecuted, at times murdered and destroyed. As the nations ask, where now is your God? Lord, may we be those who know who you are and where you are, who know that you are in the heavens as the sovereign king, 
and that all which you desire, you do. And that all of our technological and artistic, political idols will turn out to be found absolutely empty in the end. And that the great benefit that was available to the human race, even after sin, was that they might come to trust you and your provision for their forgiveness. That you would be found to be their help and their shield against the world and the flesh and the devil. So, Lord, it is our prayer that you would, by your Spirit, make us to be among those who fear you, who trust in you, and who make you our help and our shield. For you have promised to bless all of those who fear you, be they small in this society or great. You will increase us in grace and mercy in the midst of all of our trials. And Lord, as always, there are those in our midst who have been recently in trials, physical trials, Surgeries, recoveries, ongoing treatment plans, physical trials in that loved ones, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters have passed away. Relational trials, troubled marriages, troubled relationships, between parents and children. All manner of trouble. May we be confident to know, however, that in the midst of all of that, the heaven of all the heavens remains yours, and that you have given your people to live with you here on this earth. And we have the privilege in this season to bless you for sending your Son into the world, to bless you now and forever. May your name be praised. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. William Harold Neidegger was a organist of prominent church in New York City uh, late in the 19th century. He's also very much involved in uh, social action and put together a school for what in those days they referred to as the mentally retarded, what we would refer to in our parlance as the, the challenged, but he had a school for people wrestling with those kinds of problems. And in addition to that, he was a poet who wrote songs, not many famous, but one Christmas carol uh, that he wrote when he was 49 years old. Uh, has certainly hung on now for more than a century, and we sing it in, a, in our church from time to time. Uh, the lyrics uh, go this way. In a little village of Bethlehem there lay a child one day, and the sky was bright with the holy light or the place where Jesus lay. Hallelujah. Just simply praise God. Hallelujah. Oh, how the angels sang, Alleluia, how it rang. And the sky was bright and the holy light. T'was the birthday of a king. 
was the birthday of a king. Two verses, he repeats that twice. That's what connects it to our text for this morning. It was the birthday of a king. Jesus tells us in the middle of Mark 4 a parable about the kingdom of God. Well, who's the king of the kingdom of God? Well, provisionally, now, and for the rest of the age, Jesus. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. He can be spoken of, in fact, and is, as an everlasting king Though, as we'll see in a moment, that has a couple of nuances to it in the New Testament. Jesus, as the everlasting king. But it certainly would be right to to edit uh, Neidlinger's lyric just this much from "'Twas the birthday of a king' to "'It was the birthday of the king, the messianic king, the absolutely unique king. Now what I mean when I say there's a nuance to whether or not you call Jesus the eternal king, certainly true in a sense, but Paul makes that, you remember that strange announcement in the middle of his chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, when he says this, beginning in verse 25, speaking of Jesus, the King. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God that would be God the Father, has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, that is, under Jesus. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, will subject himself to him who put all things under his feet, back to the Father. And then the whole sequence closes with this, that God may be all in all. That God the Father may be all in all. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity, you see, essentially, Father and the Son are the same. Exactly the same, precisely the same, essentially. But theologians have always, but economically, economically, the economic trinity, as they say, the Son is subject to the Father. And Paul is making reference to that, even at the end of the age. that he will subject himself to the one who subjected to him all things, which is in the process of happening right now. But Jesus is the king over the kingdom of God. The text I read opens, he must reign. Little word in Greek text day. He must of divine necessity Reign till all of his enemies are placed under his feet. Now, of course, as Jesus was born a king, he doesn't look or feel to be much of a king. Stable in Bethlehem, but the king has arrived. King has arrived. As he lives his life, he doesn't seem to be much of a king. In terms of 
the Roman Empire in which he was born into, he's simply nothing at all. Zero. Zip. As to Judea and his own nation, he's a thorn in their side. And the only way that they ever speak of him as king is to speak of him as king in the hopes of getting him in trouble with Caesar and the Roman authorities who are prone not to pay much attention to him because he's nothing at all. And they can plainly see that. That's how it looks. And that's how it looks today. That's how it looks today. And that's how it feels today. As if Jesus is, on the one hand, nothing at all. And on the other hand, a thorn in the side of certain even denominations that profess to be Christian. But who want to deny a great deal of what Jesus says on a whole range of topics. And he's a thorn in their side. Well, what is going on? How can it be this way? And Jesus tells a parable to explain what's going on. And how it can be that way, this way. And here's what he said. He said, the kingdom of God is this if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. State our thesis for this morning this way. It is wise to live with the kingdom of God constantly in mind But it isn't easy because there doesn't seem to be any kingdom of God. There doesn't seem to be any big thing that God is doing. It's the kingdom of the United States that seems a big deal. It's the kingdom of China that seems a big deal. It's the kingdom of India that seems a big deal. It's, it's It's the kingdom of mass media that seem a big deal. It's the kingdom and on you go. It's all something else. And so it's a trick. It's difficult. Do it only by faith. But it's wise to live with the kingdom of God constantly in mind. That's our lodestar. That's how we measure everything else. That's what we pay attention to above everything else. Three statements about the kingdom that Jesus places in this little parable. Number one, the kingdom of God is a word-related kingdom. The kingdom of God is a word-related kingdom. Verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night. And the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. Talk about unimpressive. Hey, what's the kingdom of God like? Oh, wow, this will get your attention. It's like a guy who scatters seed on the ground. Then what does he do? He goes home and sleeps. And he gets up the next day. And then he sleeps. And he gets up the next day. 
And then he sleeps, and he gets up the next day. And he keeps casting seed around. That's what it's like. You say, oh, come on, it's got to be more. It's got to be more than that. That's ridiculous. The kingdom of God is like a lazy man's farming operation. No talk of cultivation, no talk of fertilization. No, he says, the kingdom of God is like a guy. He goes out and he casts seed on the ground. And he sleeps and rises. Right? It's a euphemism. And then just life goes on. Right? That's why we love that song from Fiddler on the Roof. Sunrise, sunset, swiftly fly the years, one season following another. One Christmas season follows another. All kinds of seasons. One just follows another and on life goes. He scatters some seed. He goes to sleep. He gets up. He goes to sleep. He gets up. He goes to sleep. He gets up. Sunrise, sunset. Swiftly fly the years. One season following another. Laden with happiness and tears. And so it is. So it is. Very plain, you see, the the kingdom of God does not hinge on some sort of clever methodology that the people of God come up with. Some really razzle-dazzle sort of thing. We like that kind of stuff. Strategic. Relevant. We wouldn't even mind being cool once in a while. Just, ah, the kingdom of God. What's that like? Well, that's like a guy who goes out and he casts seed on the ground and the seed sprouts and grows. Literally, how? He doesn't know. How? He doesn't know. Some of you, some of you, um, here today, you, you're very different people than you once were. How did that happen? Well, somebody talked to you about Jesus. Yeah, but why did something happen to you and nine out of ten times when somebody talks to something about somebody about Jesus, nothing happens? Because the percentages are actually worse than that. Why is that? We don't know. We don't know. Augustine was probably post- the apostles in the mind of many, many church historians and people in the history of philosophy who care a little bit about the Christian branch of that. It's, it's often said, sheer brilliance. Augustine is probably the most brilliant teacher that the church ever produced post the apostles. And if you ask Augustine, so what? Why? Why the? Here's how he puts it. His, his, he's, why one and not another? Why one and not another? It's a mystery. It's the mystery of the cross. And you want to say to him, and? And that's all I got to say about that. Many of you, though, you're out there. And eventually, 
This seed fell on you and it sprouted. And it changed your life. Not because of somebody's great grand strategy. It just is what happened. It's what's made you who you are. It's, it's, that's, it's the parable of the sower, right? And you even persevered. We context this king earlier in this same chapter, and the sower sows the word. And these are the ones who follow along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the sons sown on the these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy. But there's no root in themselves, but they endure for a while, for a time. And when the tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns, and they are those who hear the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And the desires for other things enter, and they choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But others still, they somehow survive all of that. And they bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. That is, they just keep growing in faith over the years. And Jesus says, That's the kingdom of God. That's it. That's it. And if that's happening in your life, that's you. That's you. The seed that sprouts and grows long term, that's the kingdom of God. That's it. That's what's going on. Secondly, the kingdom of God is a growing and advancing kingdom. Verse 28, the earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. There was a movie that came out 20 years ago. It was kind of a phenomenon. It was done on an extraordinary low budget and didn't have any big actors or actresses in it per se. And and what very rarely happens, happened with that movie. And it just was a box office explosion. Um, It was called... My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And one of the little pieces of stick um, that, that caught people's imagination was the, the father of the bride in that wedding. His name in the, in the, in the movie was Gus Portocolus. Gus Portocolus. And Gus Portocolus, no matter what conversation he was in, whenever an American vocabulary word arrived, he linked it back to its Greek roots. Remember it? You ever seen that movie? Ah! From the Greek. From the Greek. Well, I'll tell you, some words really jump off the page at you. And we got one of those right here. Right here. Verse 28. What it says in verse 28, the earth produces by itself. The earth produces by itself. I'm just going to read you a couple words right out of the Greek text, and you'll see instantly what I'm talking about. Automate, pege. Automatically, the earth. Automate, which is where we get our word, automatic. Automate. Automatically. Automatically. Not due to outside influences. Somehow, automatically. 
mysteriously, of itself, produces the blade, the ear, the full grain of the ear. Now, in biblical theology, that is certainly given credit to the Holy Spirit that you can't see or touch or feel. That's, that's, the, that's how God took that word that landed on you and for whatever reason literally started to transform your life automatically. Automate. Gus would have said, from Greek. From the Greek. Related again to the parable of the sower. Some fell on the good soil and they hear the word and they accept it and bear fruit and 30, 60, 100 fold. I've mentioned before, I'll never forget it, the first time we moved to Fort St. James, British Columbia in March 1974. And by the Amazing providence of God, I was given a, a good friend on the first day that I walked into that classroom who's still a friend of mine today. And uh, by, by the end of the first day, I was over, he had to watch his dad's garage after school. His dad was an auto mechanic and they sold a little gasoline. And so his name is Barry and Barry ran the, he ran the pumps uh, uh, after school. Uh, until the place closed uh, mid-evening so his dad could just keep on working. His, his dad worked like 13, 14 hours a day as a mechanic. He just never stopped in there. He's always in that shop. And unless he was sleeping, he was in that shop uh, fixing stuff. And, uh, and so by the end of that first day, Barry was teaching me how to play road hockey, uh, where you use a rubber-coated baseball as, as your puck and it roll and, and we shoot with a hockey stick and and so we were I'd never done that before in my life and there it was the end of that first day and I, I liked him right off he was of Japanese heritage I didn't give enough thought to this uh, when I Invited him, he came by my house uh, a couple months into this. I was always at his house, he was never at my house, but he came by my house and he was up in my room. One of his problems, one of his challenges linguistically, spoke plenty of good English, but he, he could not put together sentences without gluing them all together with profanity. And so, as, as my mom listened from downstairs, she hears, she hears this friend of mine upstairs producing one filthy sentence after the next, after the next, after the next, no matter what he was talking about. It was the glue that put it all together for him. As soon as he went out the door, my mom used to zero in me. I think we can do better than that for friends. And I said, well, Mom... You know, it really was your idea to move Fort St. James. Well, I got a nude bulletin for you. You couldn't. That's the cream of the crop that we just had up there. Come Friday night, he'll be the only sober soul other than me in our little class. So there he was. I'm willing to go back to Illinois anytime you want to pack up the stuff. And then, then she said exactly the right thing. Okay, I guess I better pray for him. Now, the first summer that we came home from college, 
he had sort of started to switch teams in the wrong direction. And so in the summer of 1977, one of the reasons I had the time to read things like Knowing God, which really changed my life that summer, was by that summer. Barry and another former pastor's son in town, they were smoking dope and drinking quite a lot all the time. And so I spent quite a bit of time with them, but it wasn't the same. Because, I mean, when, when somebody's like that, all they want to do is get you to do the same thing. So every time you get together, just, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you? It gets old after a while. Like. But then, summer of 1978, come home, walk into his room, and there in the bedstand. Great big New American Standard Bible. So what's that about? Yeah, I'm one of you now. One of you now. How'd that happen? I just get tired of living that way. So if you're going to meet people like you, you go to a Bible study. So that's what I did. And when I was there, somebody threw some seeds on him. And it sprouted. And when I talk to him now, which I still do, You can't possibly imagine that he was ever that boy up in my room. It would, it doesn't, it, it would not seem possible that they are the same person. But they are. And many of you have a story just like that. That's the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. First a little bit of change, and then more change, and then more change. That's how it goes. As Paul put it, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things, new things have come. You can plate Jesus' parable together with Paul's statement there in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It would go something like this. Therefore, if anyone is touched by the kingdom of God, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The behold, the new has come. And then as we made reference to a few years, uh, a couple of weeks ago in that little metaphor from C.S. Lewis, and then from now, it's always your opportunity this coming week to move further up and further into that. Further up and further in, further up and further in. Because that's what he's describing there. It's, it's Jesus further up and further in language. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain will appear further up and further in. Further up and further in. Thirdly, the kingdom of God is a stiff warning to wickedness. This is one of those places where commentaries all know what they don't think. uh, And they have nothing to say about what they do think. Um, and in, in this case, I think they got it wrong in what they, what they don't think. So listen carefully here to verse 29. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. 
And all of the scholars agree about this piece of it. All right? That he is making at least a linguistic reference to Joel 3.13. Puts in the sickle, the harvest is come. He's gotten his he's gotten his mind Joel 3:13 but only linguistically only linguistically not thematically cuz supposedly thematically it wouldn't fit here at all it wouldn't fit here at all now listen to Joel 3:13 put in the sickle For the harvest is ripe. So there's the two metaphors, sickle, harvest. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. So the sickle is cutting down evil. In Joel 3.13. He said, oh, there's nothing about the sickle cutting down evil in our text. And so I don't think it's linguistically connected. Thematically, they say, not connected. And I say, nonsense. The other place in the New Testament that clearly refers to uh, Joel 3.13 is the text Nate read. Um, Revelation 14, 14 and 15. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, a gold crown in his head, the king, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling in a loud voice and saying to the one who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. And the harvest of the earth is fully ripe, ripe with evil. That's, I think, exactly what Jesus has in mind here. The kingdom of God. So what throws throws everybody off, understandably, because it's not... It's, 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 a, it's a tricky thing there in verse 29. Um, but when it gives fruit, immediately he sends the sickle. Because the harvest is ready. For when it gives fruit. So what, like what's, triggering, what's triggering the sickle? That's the question. What's triggering the sickle? And they just don't have any idea. Like, I don't know what's triggering the sickle. Well, I think what's triggering the sickle is something like this. When the last people Come into the kingdom of God. When the seed falls on the last of those who are going to be brought, the age is over. And the sickle will be sent. And it's the end of the age. Now, if some of you have heard me say before, and we'll just close off with this, that this is what this is what I actually think is going on in. 2 Peter 3, favorite text, you know, for our our Arminians and Calvinists to uh, battle about. Um, But here's, here's how it goes. 2 Peter 3, 4. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So why hasn't Jesus come yet? Where's Jesus? Why hasn't Jesus come yet? That's the question. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God 
and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The judgment has come before. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist, and they're stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Beloved. Who are the beloved? These be the people of God, the kingdom, the elect. Don't look over this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who is the you? Not everybody in the world. The beloved. The elect. The kingdom. Not wishing that any should perish. Say, wow. No, 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 no. That's our favorite. The Lord doesn't want anyone to perish. But think of the argument here. This is in the first century. The argument from that perspective, that very popular perspective, would be this. The reason to delay the second coming of Christ is that the Lord didn't want anyone to perish. Nobody. How many have perished since the first century? If that's what it's talking about, it is a really bad strategy. So bad that that can't possibly be what it's talking about. That would be simply absurd. 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 But what if it was talking about this? As long as an eventually beloved person is on the earth, the sickle does not descend. The Lord does not return. But eventually, when the last grain hits the last soul to be transformed, of the beloved. The sickle is sent. And the end of the age is harvested. It's just bad news for the world ignoring the Lord Jesus Christ and assuming that he's nothing and no one and going nowhere and that the people of God are an oddity a foregone oddity to be re-educated. But in the meantime, kingdom people, here's what Jesus says to you and me. Here's how we're to think about ourselves in the coming week. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed to the beloved, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The truth will set you free from all of those things that trip up most people in the culture, and many who even make an initial profession of faith. They set you free from the cares of this world. They set you free from the temptation to turn in persecution. The truth will set you free from all the things that tend to be spiritually destructive. So my word stays in you. This word that sprouts and then goes from the grass and on forward until the grain is in the ear. That's you. Then you know the truth. And the truth has set you free. Is that you? Is that you?
said, well, I've, I was baptized, I'll tell you that. Well, that's good. I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was 11. That's good. But neither of those things necessarily tell you very much. That's why Jesus doesn't bring them up there in in John 8. He says, what I want to know is this. Is Is the word that is key to the kingdom abiding in you now? Is it abiding in you now? Is it taking you anywhere from day to day, from week to week, from month to month, to year to year? Is that who you are? Is that who you are? Or are you a person who once asked Jesus into your heart and since then you just flow downstream with whatever is going on in America, at the university, or wherever else you might be? There's a big difference between those two people. Be sure you know who you are. Because the kingdom is this word-related thing that unaccountably sprouts inside of somebody and utterly shapes the direction of their time and eternity by the power of the Spirit. Look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would enable us to think about, as we said, the kingdom. How wonderful, how unaccountable, how surprising that we should find ourselves in your kingdom, attached to your word, shaped by it, loving it, falling and rising, falling and rising, sinning and repenting, but always repenting, always coming back, always listening, hearing. May we be so both now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.